Well, we've just heard a fantastic sermon, and it was, you know the subject, so if it's really bad from this point forward, no one can say anything because what has been, <laughs> what has been, what has been studied so, so far. So I wish to thank the Lord for this opportunity and uh, to speak this evening regarding this very important topic, and I also want to thank our brothers and sisters in Christ here at the Rice Road Congregation for extending to me and all the other speakers as well this wonderful privilege to reason together concerning those things which are revealed from God's Word. It is my fervent prayer only to speak the words of life and truth, and I trust that you, my brethren, will correct me should I preach anything contrary to His Holy Scriptures. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. This presentation is not directly about God's forgiveness per se, since the topic is entitled Extending Forgiveness. It infers that we mere mortal human beings have been offered forgiveness uh, by God and therefore in turn extend forgiveness to others. But the truth is, this is often much easier said than done. When we're deeply offended or hurt, the pain is real. And sometimes it produces scars that prove the degree and level of the pain. And so in, in my presentation, we will examine how to extend forgiveness scripturally and sincerely to others, even to others who have sinned against us in a deep and permanent way. In this study, I've been asked to, by the brethren here at the congregation to answer the following six questions. Are Christians required to forgive those who do not repent or seek forgiveness? Is there a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation? What are the dangers in withholding forgiveness to others? How do I process through forgiving those who have hurt me deeply? If I don't trust, does that mean I'm not forgiving? And how can I model forgiveness to those around me? Well, to begin our analysis of this study, I want to review the definition of the word. The word forgive comes from the Greek word aphiemi, which means to send forth or to send away. Apo meaning from, ime meaning to send. And it denotes, besides its other meanings, to remit, as in remitting sins or remitting debts. And so forgiveness involves sending away or remitting a debt. It means letting go of it, releasing it. This is opposite, of course, of keeping it close or nearby, as to retain or attempt to bind the debt. Now, I believe that it's important for us to understand and make clear early on in our study that when we're talking about forgiveness or forgiving others, <clears throat> that we're not talking about forgiving their sin. People, including Christians, do not have the authority or power to forgive sin, remove, blot out, make atonement for, etc. Only God and those to whom He has granted the authority has the power and authority to forgive sin. In the Gospel accounts, we read of a time when Jesus healed a paralytic man while uttering the following words. He said, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. This is found in three of the gospel accounts. Upon hearing these words, the Jewish leaders, uh, as noted in Luke 5, asked, Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, although they were wrong in rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, they were, in fact, correct in asking the question, Who can forgive sins but God alone? <clears throat> the same power and authority that made the paralytic man walk was also the same power and authority which forgave him of his sins. 
Jesus Christ, as God's Son, had that power. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, God expressed to Israel that power to forgive sin. He said, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. This, of course, was prophesied and made possible by the shed blood of the glorious Savior Jesus Christ. As the Hebrew writer reminds us in Hebrews 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins. John wrote in 1 John 2, verse 2, and he himself is the propitiation or atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And why? Why is Christ himself the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world? Because John would continue in 1 John 3, 5, in him there is no sin. And so it is very important that when we're talking about our ability or our authority to forgive others, we're not talking about forgiveness in connection with forgiving their sin. Having the ability, power, or authority to forgive another person's sins, including our own, rests with the authority of Jesus Christ. And so, now that we've established that scriptural truth, may we proceed with our first question. Question number one, are Christians required to forgive those who do not repent or seek forgiveness? Yes, Christians must forgive those who do not repent or seek forgiveness. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, the scriptures record in Matthew 6 verse 12 that he taught them to say in prayer to the Father and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Bible commentator Charles Ellicott notes regarding this passage. He said, as we forgive our debtors denotes a completed act before we begin to, begin to pray. In the very act, we are taught to remind ourselves of the conditions of forgiveness. Also, this was not a suggestion by the Lord, but was His directive, His will, His command. It's no different than when He commanded that we should not do our charitable deeds before men to be seen of them, or when He commanded us not to worry. Now, just like these other commands, forgiving our debtors, as in those who have wronged us, those who owe us something, at the very least an apology, this is sometimes extremely difficult. But so is turning the other cheek or going the second mile. Forgiving others can be hard. But the Lord explains that the measure of forgiveness which we receive from God is in direct proportion to our forgiving others. In fact, he goes on in verses 14 and 15, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Burton Kaufman notes, It appears that forgiveness actually has two centers, human and divine. The same two levels, human and divine, are observable in the case of Saul of Tarsus. And I find this very interesting. Acts 7, 58, 60. Here Stephen forgave Saul. Saul was there holding the coats of those that were killing him, stoning him to death. He forgave him on the human level, uh, Kaufman writes, as the deed was done. But Saul was forgiven in heaven when he obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. Romans 6, 17. It is the Christian's duty to forgive all men without regard to the repentance, end quote. So, yes, Christians must forgive others, even those who don't repent or ask forgiveness. In Mark 11, chapter 25 and 26, Jesus said, And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, 
that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. Notice Jesus gives no conditions to forgiving others, no need for remorse on their part or for them to apologize or for them to repent or seek forgiveness. Sure. What our offender did to us hurt us. And perhaps what they did was wrong, sinful. But to refuse to forgive others, even those who are not sorry, is to deny forgiveness from God. Further, we cannot control the thoughts, decisions, and actions of other people, but we can choose to surrender ours to the Lord. Refusing to forgive someone who does not repent or ask for forgiveness is like holding on to a burning coal in hopes of someday placing it back into their hand. Just let go of it. It doesn't need a hand to stay in. That hurt, offense, grudge, or brokenness doesn't need a home. Just leave it at the foot of the cross and move on. Which brings us to question number two. Is there a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation? Yes. Forgiveness is possible without reconciliation. But reconciliation is not possible without forgiveness. Reconciliation, by definition, is to change from enmity to friendship. Vine goes on to say, with regard to the relationship between God and man, reconciliation is what God accomplishes, exercising His grace towards sinful man on the ground of the death of Christ. He quotes, in fact, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, that says that is that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed us the word of reconciliation. Vines goes on to say, by reason of this, men and their sinful condition and alienation from God are invited to be reconciled to Him. This reveals that reconciliation is not complete, actually, until both parties change from enemies to friends. And so as we've learned from Scripture, we're taught and commanded by the Lord to forgive others from our heart who have wronged us. Yet even if we forgive them, it doesn't necessarily reconcile the relationship between them and, and ourselves. A biblical example of this is David and Saul. In the beginning of their relationship, David and Saul had an extremely close relationship. But in 1 Samuel chapter 18, when they were returning from a war against the Philistines, the women shouted, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And the Bible says this made Saul extremely furious. And the scripture records, so Saul eyed David from that day forward. To Saul, David was no longer a friend, but an enemy. And later in 1 Samuel 24, after years of being hunted like an animal, David was given an opportunity to him end the whole ordeal and take Saul's life. But the scriptures tell us that David secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe without Saul being aware of it. Afterward, David said, The Lord delivered you today in my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you, but my eye spared you. Now listen to what he says. I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me. By letting Saul go, David forgave Saul, but their relationship was not reconciled because Saul continued to treat David as an enemy till he died. Forgiveness is possible without reconciliation, but reconciliation is not possible, dear brothers and sisters, without forgiveness. Question number three. What are the dangers in withholding forgiveness to others? Well, I think there are a multiplicity of dangers, but I'm going to point out three. Number one, we forfeit God's mercy. 
in James chapter 2, verse 13, the Bible says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, as we found out earlier in our study, the measure of forgiveness which we receive from God is in direct proportion to our forgiving others. If we don't forgive others, God will not forgive us. Again, Jesus said, Matthew 6, 14, 15, If you forgive men their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. And James concurs, you see. We will not receive mercy from God if we show no mercy to others. But here, James elaborates on why this lack of forgiveness on our part forfeits God's mercy toward us. You see, to choose to not to forgive someone is to execute judgment without mercy. And this brings us to a second danger in withholding forgiveness to others. We attempt to play or be God. The Greek word for judgment here in James 2.13 is krisis, meaning to make a decision. Other words given by Strong's concordance in the definition include such words as sentence and accusation. When we withhold forgiveness, withhold mercy, we execute judgment or we condemn. This position of executing judgment or condemnation, if only in our mind, is very dangerous. And it often leads to a vengeful attitude of which never belongs to mere mortals. Paul reminds us in Romans 12, 19, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. When we show no mercy... By withholding forgiveness, we place ourselves on God's throne and we show partiality. We become, as J James said, James 2.4, judges with evil thoughts. Rather, James reminds us in verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. And loving others means forgiving them, Paul says, as he records in Colossians 3.13.14, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. But when we do not love and forgive others, we do show partiality. And we do just what the Bible says. We show partiality, we commit sin, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And so number two, another danger in withholding forgiveness is the attempt to be God. But a third danger in withholding forgiveness is that we surrender our spiritual freedom in Christ. We are given spiritual freedom or liberty in Christ as Christians. Now this does not mean that we are at liberty to live however we want, but means that we've been set free in Christ from the shackles of sin. And we are judged by Him, by Him who judges by a standard that is right and true and holy. We are judged by Him who loved us and saved us by His own blood. He said in John 8, verse 36, Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. So we don't want to start surrendering that freedom. That freedom or liberty came at a great cost. The life of Jesus Christ. That freedom or liberty also came with a cost to all of us as Christians by our submission to the Lord, giving up our wants for his desire and will. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit, that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. 
Yet when we are unforgiving, we are in real danger of surrendering that spiritual freedom in Christ. We essentially say, no thank you to God regarding this freedom that He's given us. We would rather live as the one who is in the jurisdiction and not under His jurisdiction. We would rather be a judge with a grudge, as some have called it. This is why James mentions in James 2.12, he says, So speak, listen, and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. The Lord desires that we speak, as the brother mentioned so eloquently earlier, and that we do, that we live as one who will be judged by His perfect law of liberty, or His gospel of love, as some have called it. When we withhold forgiveness, we remove Jesus from the throne. We remove His perfect law, and we insert ourselves and our flawed wisdom and hurt feelings, thereby surrendering our freedom and embracing the shackles of our former self and sin. Why, brothers and sisters, would we do this? Just forgive them and let Jesus be the judge. Question number four. How do I process through forgiving those who have hurt me deeply? Well, I think there's at least a couple of things. Number one, expect it. you got to expect it. In Matthew 18, it's interesting how Peter phrases the question to Jesus in verse 21. Listen, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Jesus and Peter's conversation is not hypothetical. It's not a matter of if someone sins against us. It's a matter of when. Therefore, we must be prepared spiritually, mentally, emotionally for the reality that someone will hurt us, sometimes unintentionally and other times intentionally. Frankly, we should expect it. We live, after all, in an imperfect world among imperfect people. Alexander Pope was right. To err is human, to forgive divine. When Jesus was betrayed by Peter, Jesus didn't write him off and say, you know, I was wrong about you. You've really hurt me deeply. I was planning to start my church with you as a helper. But now that you've sinned against me, it's over. No, before Peter betrayed Jesus, Jesus knew. He even predicted that Peter would deny him three times. The Lord was already planning on Peter, on forgiving Peter before the offense took place. Now, of course, Jesus had the advantage of knowing people's hearts, but he sets the example for us. You know, the main difference between a healthy friendship and a broken friendship is not that there are less arguments, less stress, or less wrongs. The difference is that one friendship is committed to forgiving the offenses and moving on in love, while the other friendship never forgives and never can move on. Marriages don't fall apart and end in divorce because both husband and wife sometimes act cruel and even sinful towards one another and against the marriage itself. Marriages end in divorce is because two people refuse to let go of their hurt, anger, and pride many times and throw repentance and forgiveness out the window. Congregational splits don't happen because members of the congregation say and do hurtful things and even commit sin. Congregational splits happen when the people of God are not willing to admit their sin, repent, and also not willing and eager to forgive one another when these things happen because oftentimes they eventually do. In Ephesians chapter 4, this great chapter, Paul concludes with this final verse in verse 32 when he says, Be kind to one another, 
tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. The fact that Paul writes this is indicative that we sometimes are lacking in these areas, and therefore in processing through forgiving those who have deeply hurt us, we will be much better equipped if we have prepared our hearts even before the hurt occurs, knowing forgiveness will eventually be needed. But not only do we expect that we're going to be hurt and we have to forgive, but we need to grow from it. We learn from a very young age when we're really hurt that we go to the doctor. Well, the psalmist gives us a very encouraging passage. Psalm 147.3, He, the Lord, heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. If you've been hurt by someone else, this passage of Scripture is very helpful because the Lord is that great physician. And so if your heart is broken by the sin or offense of another, you can overcome it because He's your doctor and He can help you. Again, this is in spite of terrible pain and hurt caused by another. In spite of the fact that sometimes such pain is life-altering, life-redirecting. In spite of all that, the damage that has shattered your confidence, your trust, and sometimes even your hope, you can still overcome with the help of the Lord. And you can grow from it. This was the attitude of Joseph in the Bible. When Joseph was young, his very own brothers, filled with a jealous rage, sold him into slavery. Joseph would struggle in Egypt for another about 13 years, being wrongly accused, being lied on, being forgotten. But Joseph stayed faithful to God and to His will in the midst of the pain and the hurt. And eventually God made him second command over the entire empire of Egypt. After a few more years, Joseph's family, suffering from a severe drought back in Israel, went to Egypt and they didn't recognize Joseph, begged him as the governor of Egypt for food. Eventually, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. And after their father, Jacob, had died, their brothers, fearing for their lives, begged Joseph for mercy. Notice what they said or asked him in Genesis 50, verse 17. Now please, his brothers asked Joseph, Joseph, in the command, please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your fathers. They didn't even refer to themselves as his brothers. For all those years, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Joseph held inside in his heart what his brothers had done to him, how they hated him, how they hurt him. But notice what the Bible says. When Joseph heard this, he said, Do not be afraid. Listen, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me. God meant it for good. As we've learned from our study, Joseph knew better than to play God. He said, am I in the place of God? He, did not, he chose not to condemn his brothers who had sinned against him. Rather, he chose to forgive them. And he proved by forgiving them that he trusted the Lord. And through the good and through the bad, Joseph let God lead him. And he never forgot who was always there for him. When he gave God, and he gave God the glory for it, in Genesis 41, Pharaoh asked, he said, I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. But Joseph's response was what? It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. The Bible says that the Lord Jesus understands what we're feeling as well, what we're going through. He's our high priest, our advocate, our friend, our best friend. 
And like Joseph, we can overcome the pain and hurt that others have put upon us because Jesus has overcome. And when we let go of that pain and give it to Him, we will overcome too. Jesus said in John 16, These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace in the world. In the world you will have tribulation. You will have hurt. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Let's just hitch our wagon to Jesus and we can overcome. Question number five. If I don't trust, does that mean I'm not forgiving? No, because forgiveness and trust are not the same thing. I believe, in fact, that there are some true differences between forgiveness and trust. And for those who confuse the two, there can be unintended consequences. One error in equating forgiveness to trust is concluding that we cannot forgive because we simply cannot trust. I mean, you can't not feel sometimes how you feel about some people that you don't trust. And so you don't forgive because you think that trust and forgiveness are the same. Another unintended consequence is because we equate forgiveness to trust is we go ahead and we trust those whom we forgive when we probably shouldn't. While we should forgive them as instructed by the Lord, to trust them may actually be very unsafe or at the very least unwise. Forgiveness has been called a gift, Paul wrote in Colossians 1.14, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus offered redemption through His blood to the whole world as a gift, whether they care to receive it or not. And so when we are saved, we receive forgiveness of sins, Acts 2.38, because we are faithfully obedient to the Lord and we receive His gift of salvation. In turn, when we extend forgiveness to others, when we offer the love of Christ, we could withhold that forgiveness, we could carry that debt that is owed to us, but we give that up, we release it. It is our gift to others. And again, whether they care to receive it or not, Again, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.32, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. But trust is different than forgiveness. If forgiveness is like a gift, then trust is like a wage. It must be earned. One cannot earn a gift. It is, after all, a gift. We should never be required to earn another's forgiveness. Neither should we require others to earn our forgiveness. Again, in the parable of the unforgiving servant, Matthew 18, Jesus clearly shows the forgiveness, that forgiveness is a gift. The initial servant begged for forgiveness, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. But the master, God, did not require that the servant uh, pay, but gave him the gift of forgiveness. The Bible says, Jesus said, Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But again, trust is not a gift. It has to be earned. It has to be built. It has to be tested. It has to be proven. Paul instructed the Christians at Corinth when he offered his, quote, advice regarding the unmarried and widows. Notice he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in His mercy has made trustworthy. The term trustworthy used here comes from the Greek word pastos, meaning faithful, reliable. Jesus used a derivative of this word in Luke 16 in the parable of the unjust steward when he said in verse 11, Therefore, if you have not been faithful in unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? These and other scriptures show that trust must be earned or proven by acts of faithfulness and reliability. And even though over time, even though we do earn other people's trust 
or they earn our trust. Ultimately, we should know better than to place our full and complete trust in any person. David said in Psalm 118, verse 8, he said, It is better to trust in the Lord than to place your confidence in man. And David spoke from experience, having been betrayed many times by those close to him. Instead, though, of becoming bitter or regarding all people as inherently unworthy and untrustworthy, he learned and he taught a simple truth. People will all too often fail us, but we can always trust God. David's son, King Solomon, learned that, that lesson well. He said in Proverbs 3, verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Now, this is not to say that no one should ever be trusted. As we previously said, like a test or a wage, trust can be proved, it can be earned, but it takes some time. Forgiveness, however, shouldn't take time. Also, forgiveness is based upon the past. Trust is based upon the future. When we forgive others, we forgive what has been done or said, the past. But when we trust others, what will be done or said yet has, has yet to be done or said, the future. In this way, forgiveness and trust, again, are not the same. When we've been hurt by others, we forgive the past immediately. But with hope and patience, we wait to trust. As fellow Christians, we should work very diligently, however, to reveal broken trust so that our relationship in Christ is mended. Jesus described this, as was also mentioned by our brother in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 23-24. He says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and therefore remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then and come and offer your gift. This brings us to our final question. How can I model forgiveness to those around me? Well, really it's simple. Model forgiveness like the Lord. Many of the people who had earlier in his ministry lauded and praised Jesus as a great prophet, even the Messiah, had been led to believe later that he was a blasphemer and a fraud. The religious Jewish Rulers mocked him, saying such things as, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. Also the people derided him, crying out, His blood be upon us and upon our children. But what was Jesus' response? What did he do? Did he pronounce swift condemnation upon them? I probably would have. Did he, did he vow to never forgive them? but promised to execute great punishment? No. While in agony and suffering, he offered mercy and forgiveness from the cross. How did he do this? I believe by accomplishing two faithful acts. Very simple. From the cross. He prayed and he stayed. Let me explain. Number one, he sincerely prayed for others, even those who were hurting him. His prayers were real, as the brother mentioned again in his lesson. His motive was pure. His prayers were heartfelt. He truly cared for them, even when it appeared that they could not care less for him. 
from the cross at his gravest hour, he prays to the Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Notice that Jesus asked the Father to forgive the people and to forgive those who were killing him. Some have noted that the Lord was not asking for a blanket pardoning of all sin for his executors. For some later would repent, likely of, that, of the very sin and obey the gospel at Pentecost, as found in Acts 2. But the Lord asked the Father to show them mercy. And his request was literally in a prayer. And so may we model his forgiveness, as the Lord did, to sincerely pray on others' behalf. But not only did he model forgiveness by praying, he models forgiveness to us by staying dedicated to the Father's will. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, verse 23, When he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him. Let that soak in. He committed himself to him who judges righteously. That's important. The Lord did not return the evil for evil. He let God judge. They criticized him, but he held his tongue, trusting the Father. They threatened him, but he gave it to the righteous judge. Listen, no matter what anyone has said about us to hurt us, it changes not the fact that the Lord is the judge, and as judge, God's judgment is right. And no matter what anyone has done to us, or will do to hurt us, don't forget, it could never exceed or even come close to matching the level of forgiveness and mercy that we all have received from Him. As is stated in the Messianic prophecy, Isaiah 53, 5, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. And so I leave you with a quotation from C.S. Lewis. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully, round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So go ahead and love. Go ahead and forgive. As Jesus said in Luke 7, 47, To whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. It is inferred that the opposite of that is also true. To whom much is forgiven, the same loves much. Never let it be said that you love too little and that you forgave too late. Yet rather let it be said that you truly loved and you truly forgave. Why? Because you recognized how much you were loved and forgiven.